and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 96, Jamie in a Dance with Dragons, a da one. A da I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. It is ingrained within me that it is, it is a da That is, that is it. I actually feel bad that we haven't been saying a da as often as we could have been and or afuck to be honest afuck afuck is what you should really uh, mourn for fuck we haven't been saying it enough that we have not been saying mm-hmm. and shame on us bookshelf stud were he here would also say shame on us but a dubada we are in a dubada now we have a lot to catch up on it was really fun having guests the last two weeks during a feast for crows we had our friend Kristen, K-R-T-M-D, on with a super Jamie fanatic in the last episode, and before that we had Don Willie on for Jamie Six in Affuck. 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 Uh, no, we had Don Willie on, and that was wonderful, though. So yes. we, the, the Blackfish encounter was Brendan the Blackfish. It was very, it was definitely, I felt like the 8-bit pixel shades were being lowered down on Brendan Tully's face. That's a meme. It's a YouTube video. I think that, yeah, it is a meme. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to love that YouTube video. It's to Muse. Yep. Interesting. I could never get into Muse, but, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Oh. We have another song-related thing. So this this week we said we are going to address some emails and tweets of note. And one of them we got from our patron, Sir Flo, of the Shelled Shield. That's actually very difficult to say. Sir Flo of the Shelled Shield. The Shelled Shield is hard. I have a voice made for radio, so I don't think it's your fault, but I don't think it was that bad. I think it's me. I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Sir Flo the Shelled Shield says, Hey, I just listened to your podcast on Jamie 7 and had an odd relation in my head I thought you guys might enjoy. I couldn't help but think of Mac Miller's song, Perfect Circle, specifically the first Mm. verse and chorus when hearing your discussion on Jamie's dream in the chapter. Of course, this was not intended, so it is not a perfect parallel, but I felt the theme and some of the lyrics strongly tied together. The aspects of self-loathing, past mistakes guiding your future, and the line, you got options, what do you do? It might have been you ladies saying that phrase, but it stuck out to me, and I just felt the need to share if you are unfamiliar with the song, one of his best, in my opinion, says Sir Flo. First of all, I just want to say... R.I.P. Mac Miller. Yeah. I uh, I actually do like Mac Miller. Sam. I just had a conversation with a friend this weekend about Mac Miller. And I think it's actually stronger in Jamie 1, A Dance with Dragons. A Dawada? Yes, A Dawada. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I mean, same. I, I do like Mac Miller as well. And uh, I think this, I'm glad that Sir Flo sent this to us. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying things. Actually, this kind of works, especially in this chapter, not just in Jamie 7. There's this line in Perfect Circle. Every devil don't got horns. Every hero ain't got capes. Opened up my eyes. Shit, I'm finally awake. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. And that, that's some Jamie 1, a dance with, a da da <laughs> How dare I disrespect the process. I know. Um... <laughs> That's a good one. I think that's insightful. I come from a generation of uh, myself for AOL Instant Messenger Away Message lyrics. Mm, same, same. Yeah, so 
I can't tell you how many times as a youngster, back when I was 11, 12 years old, I had Hawthorne Heights, I'm outside of your window with my radio, you know, blaring or whatever. So don't feel bad. I think this is really insightful, sir. Flow of the shell shield. I think it's funny that you make it sound like it was only when you were really young. I was doing that well into my early 20s every now and then. Oh, I, I retweet different well. lyric bots on Twitter all the time. I can't oh. help who I am. Yeah, there were lyric bots. But yeah, I, I have to suppress that urge constantly. But I mean, <laughs> there are definitely songs that sometimes you're just like, wow, that definitely feels like something that's going on for this character. So thank you for that. I, I like this. I like this I, idea of people sending songs. I know you and I actually just were talking the other day of like, could we make playlists for patrons? Like mixtapes. Like Spotify mixtapes. I don't know. I know Game of Thrones did that back then as one of their um Yeah, they made songs of like bubblegum pop, like shoegaze electronica bubblegum pop. Like I was like, what is like churches was the only good thing on that playlist. Anyways, I'm just saying I could do better. So Back then, because I would listen to things, but not always add them to my Spotify library, which I guess I should do. But I ended up getting Theon Greyjoy, I think, as my as what they matched me with. And it was a lot mm. of Elliot Smith. <laughs> and <laughs> let that tell you about me what it needs to. I spent the weekend singing Elliot Smith. So again, I'm feeling yeah. like this is very spot on to the AOL instant message yeah. away message experience. I'm glad we're connecting. <laughs> so well thanks so much for sending us an email sir flow of the shelled shield big shout out to our patrons thanks again and our friend brooke emailed us they heard about us on not a cast they equate jamie to a jock who has to get a real job get a job and get over his high school sweetheart at the age of 35 the raw age of 35 and their spiciest take, in their opinion, was that Jamie has an interesting fixation on Ned Stark. It's interesting they both hold Arthur Dane in very high regard, and also Brooke said they're kind of into that Jamie-Ned crack ship, you know, that, that namey, Jed. I don't know, Eliana, what rule you? What's the official name? I kind of like Jed. What about Jeddard? Mm, Jeddard is good too. I think they have the same energy. It's just one short for the other, just like Ned is short for Eddard, right? And mm. I, I think that they're both interchangeable. I think it's good as a, as a ship name. Okay, well, that's not the most important, though. Like, uh, I was just kidding, but I think it's an important thing. But they, they said that most importantly, they were wondering if John will be present for Jamie's potential second king kinslaying. And they note that if the five-year gap, which we often reference, had happened, John would be around the age Ned was during Robert's Rebellion. And they imagine that the Ned-alike would freak Jamie out. Hmm. So I think that's possible, and I think that's going to happen to John quite a bit. I don't know about Jamie, but I do just, just I, not to change the subject too much, but I do think that it's something that John is going to clash with Jorah about. I know that there was some tension in the show, but they didn't really play it up, but I do think it's something that's going to be a big deal because, I mean, Jorah's got some very deep-seated resentment towards Ned Stark. For Jamie, I think... I don't think John will be there when it happens, when Jamie does it. I don't think he can get south that fast. There, there's that, and I think it's something that just isn't 
for me personally, it doesn't feel like it's something that would relate to John's arc at the moment. Mm -hmm. It might be something he hears about, but I don't think it's something that he's going to be in the room for. If anything, I mean, maybe he comes like right after, but I, it doesn't feel, I don't know that it feels like that. I, I think that it seems like it's going in a different, the, the streams, right, are going in different directions. Mm -hmm. Not like the story's going in a different direction. Like, there's there's something else that's going on there narratively. Yeah, and for me, I always... I mean, I face theories logistically as well. Jamie's probably going to spend some time in the Riverlands in at least the first half of The Winds of Winter, right? We, at the very end of this chapter that we're about to discuss and talk about in a while, will chat Jamie's future for sure, and... Brienne shows up and they're in the Riverlands and, you know, he says he's going to go to King's Landing, but he ends up sticking around the Riverlands. And I wonder if, you know, John's dead, right? We know John's dead. We did that last arc, last chapter <laughs> POV. If you recall, it was a very long time and I love John, but I'm very happy that we are moving on with our POV lives with Jamie, And then, of course, next week, Aries Oakard, another Kingsguard. But... I don't know. I don't think John's going to wake up with time to really join in with Jamie. I think if Jamie has to go confront Cersei by halfway through the bookish to the end of the book, somewhere in that span, because the first half, again, possibly Riverlands in his first few chapters, John's got other fish to fry in the north. He's not going to go south for a bit. It feels like a storyline that's more entangled with perhaps Tyrion's, and therefore Daenerys has been not necessarily John's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's worth remembering, right, that in the books we have Aegon, who might be playing more of that role opposite Daenerys versus Cersei. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a big thing to remember. Yeah. I, I think that the thought that Jon would be around the same age as during Robert's Rebellion is interesting, but I think that's a thing that, again, I feel is more pertinent to someone like Jorah's storyline. But the idea of Jaime and Jon meeting up, I think that's something that definitely has to happen especially because it sounds like jamie had such a huge impression on john back then and the way that their careers have kind of paralleled each other in many ways of like why don't i join the celibate order and then break my vows i i think it'd be interesting if if anything would john and jamie connect right like, them being like, mm -hmm. I, the things that I have done, the things that have happened to me are irredeemable. I would even double down on that statement and say, will Jamie, and this is if he survives Stoneheart, if he survives the Winds of Winter, this would have to be in a dream of spring. If there's any credence to the ending of Game of Thrones, which I would say that because the last episode made mostly no narrative sense when linked to the rest of the entire show that happened for eight seasons and however many episodes before it. Uh, if if that episode is so separate, it's likely that it was not their writing because it did not connect. <laughs> and it's likely it was canonical. I'm just saying because none of it made sense. So if John's ending is similar, he would be a kin- Slash Queenslayer, as we know, and if Jamie is going to participate in a second queen or kinslaying, and if Jamie's already had his initial kingslaying, um, I don't know. I think there's something more in that connection. I think maybe they would connect on that, but that's if 
Jamie survives to that point, and I think that's a bigger question to answer first. Yeah, that is a question, absolutely. And I think some of the dreams sort of imply maybe something like that, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we have one last comment to talk about from a Patreon post from our friend Dibbles and Bits. Eliana, take it away. I love this name still, Dibbles and Bits. You know that. (laughs) Everyone knows that. Dibbles and Bits says, The more you talk about Tywin's neglect of infrastructure and building, the more I'm convinced either Jamie or Tyrion will end the series as first builder to repurpose Night's Watch. Hmm. You know, that's a really good point. Now that I think about it, I didn't really think in that manner, but... I don't know, I used to heavily buy into that, the theory that Jamie will be in the Night's Watch, or possibly even the blank Lord Commander, right? Like, pick a number, Lord Commander. Uh, a lot of people have different theories about him going to the Night's Watch, and I think that would be really great narratively compared to his white cloak, you know, turning it black and going to be a better man there and bring order to a good thing. But, like, I don't know, I don't... Again, this narratively depends upon Jamie's survival in the main story of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it would be nice if he survived, I guess, if I cared about him. I would love it if he did. I just don't think he will. I don't think he will. I just don't. I I don't know that I would love it if he survived, that would be attaching a very strong emotion to that. And I don't feel strong emotions about Jamie Lannister. You can quote me on that, but I would say that it would be a nice thing if he could survive. But I I think that at the end of the day, he has a duty to fulfill whatever that duty is. We're going to learn. I mean, speaking on a larger level, right? Like if the idea of everything is very cyclical, I think that there's a possibility that we see a lot of people, not not just Jamie, but, you know, a lot of people from his generation, those who lived through and fought Robert's Rebellion, die. Not only as, uh, I mean, because, like, there's going to be a war, it's going to be quite many wars, mm-hmm. and, and very large and a very rough winter, theoretically. I think it will be in the books. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you end Odds up are with- against him. Yeah, you end up with a, there's that, and you end up with something that ends up mirroring the state of Westeros after Robert's Rebellion, right, where you're rebuilding and you have a bunch of fucking teenagers in charge of everything, traumatized teenagers, and you wonder why society sucks. I mean, it's hard, I mean, again, being a teenager is already hard enough, like, my god, and so I think there's that, but if anyone were to be first builder of the Night's Watch, I think that Tyrion would be someone who would be qualified for it. But, and this is a a personal opinion on my part, it would bum me out if there was still a Night's Watch. Because, like, the whole point of the Night's Watch, right, especially if they address the threat of the others and that all gets figured out, like, the whole point of the Night's Watch was to protect against that, and then it ended up evolving into something that just sort of, like, kept a bunch of people without any fucking rights for a long-ass time. So I don't know that the Night's Watch will really exist in that same way. And if it does, it would bum me out. I wouldn't be surprised if it does, but it would bum me out. I expect there will have to be some sort of reform because it's a different foundation than keeping the people that are different from us out right at the wall. If the walls crumbled and 
civilization kind of dies in the north for a hot second, which is what we all kind of expect will happen in this wintry, snowy apocalypse. I don't know. I just, uh, maybe I'm just disillusioned right now with some of the stories with all the, you know, like, at the end, the hero becomes a cop forever. Like, Jon Snow, Lord Commander forever. Or Jamie Lannister then gets to go north and be Lord Commander against some snowy hills of nothingness and teaches men to make stew of carrots. I get it. I get the humbled property of it all. Um, again, maybe I'm, it's just because I'm watching Korra, Legend of Korra, and I'm just having a lot of war thoughts. But I don't know. I just think, like, the Night's Watch still existing in that manner was definitely a cheap blow in the Game of Thrones endgame. I know it was different, like, they all went back to go find their own home now that the threat of magic was gone, or evil magic. But, like... And it was kind of like dismal. a cover for John, anyway. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely it a up. cover. It was like a loophole. Yeah, but I... And I again, I wouldn't be surprised if it was dissolved in that, like... I get and and now that I think about it, to Dibbles and Bits credit, they did just say a repurposed Night's Watch. Yes, no, absolutely, and abolished and remade, and I get that. It just everything maybe just feels dismal right now. Is that me? If any, yeah. If anything, if anyone, I think it would be Tyrion would actually be qualified for it. He and peed I'm off that sure wall. That, that's true. Honestly, I'm envious of that act. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay, well, something you're not going to be envious of is our monstrous lightning round. I don't know if we can even call this a lightning round. Yeah, thunderstorm. That's what I was going to say. I think we're about to be thunderstruck by this. So here's what we did. There's one chapter from Jamie 7, A Feast for Crows, ah, fuck. and ah, fuck. the end of A Feast for Crows, and that is Sam 5. We will talk about that in a second. And then the appendix. And then we're going to do something different where we summarize the entire character arc for each character in a Dawada so that we can move the fuck on with our lives and get into Jamie. We're going to have to be fast. We're going to have to be swift. I'm not talking Harris swift. I'm talking fast talking swift. So keep up and let's do it. Lightning round, Eliana. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh my god, let's go. Alright, a piece for... I'm sorry, Afuk, Sam 5. Sam meets Marwyn the Mage, who most think is an old dud, but is an absolute firecracker advising Sam in life at the Citadel. Get in and get out, or die trying, or someone steals your face. <laughs> Except, like, you're on Zion's way, so die trying. Uh, appendix. I have nothing to say about it, so we'll, we'll move on to... Well, it starts out with... <laughs> oh my god. Let's move on to a Dabada, the prologue. Oh, all I wrote for this was to be sung to the tune of Lump by Presidents of the USA. If you played rock band in the last couple decades, you might recognize it. Bump, she's bump, she's bump, she's in your head. Does no one else like grunge? Is it just me? I didn't listen to that to them. I know that people did, but I didn't. I'm sorry. It's all right. Daenerys. Stalwart Shield's body is presented to Daenerys, and so are the bones of a child. As the warring mounts around her, she knows the only way to protect her people, marry his Darzaloric. But the marriage to his dark materials has chained the dragon, and by book's end, Daenerys takes flight on Drogon in order to learn who she is and wake the dragon within. Very dramatically telling. I'm very here for this. 
Poor Quentin. Quentin and his mates embark on an adventure, but war makes monsters of us all, or slaughter of some of us. Hoping to fulfill a pact made long ago with the Targaryens, Quentin fails his father, turning into a frog at the end of the day. Well, frog soup, maybe. Frog barbecue. Mmm. Fried frog? Crispy. Yeah. Crispy frog's good. Um, Barristan. Barristan must keep the peace when his queen flees, but hands seem to change like shifts of beasts in the night around Marine. He does his best, but the power vacuum left in Drogon and Danny's wake leads straight to war. John. John's vows conflict with saving the North throughout Adawada. Stannis's rejections, both current and impending, tend to complicate the political situation for John, who's already given too much to this king. John must use his lord face to save two princes at the cost of his friend's happiness. He brings justice to dissenters in the Watch, but his actions are seen by many as treasonous, and the men of the Watch perform mutiny as the act closes. Bran. Bran and his party are led by cold hands to the last unicorn. <laughs> the last green seer. Sorry, the unicorn is actually reckoned. My bad. Liar. For Bran is to learn and hone his skills in time to fulfill his role against the longest of nights, the winter solstice. So not longer than like an hour and a half on HBO, right? Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It was actually entitled The Long Night, wasn't it? Yep. They did that. I try not to think about it. Arya. With her own green sight returned to her, Arya takes on a new face, completing her first assassination. Valar Margulis. New face who dis. <laughs> Man, that's actually good. Davos. Davos travels through storms to make his way to White Harbor, where he'll vie for Wyman's tensions to win him to Stannis' regime. But what Davos finds is more valuable than White Harbor's allegiance. And more dangerous, too. His task changes. He must head into the treacherous waters surrounding Skagos and bring home Prince Rickon Stark and the last unicorn. Oh my god. I'm so... I'm kind of sad you didn't get this one, but I will perform it for you. This is a performance. It's okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Chloe. Perform for me. After, you will have to guess where it's from. Dance for me, Chloe. <sighs> Victorian. Victorian has always been put down by his brother, Euron. Victorian is just as cute as Euron. Victorian's just as smart as Euron. People totally like Victorian just as much as they like Euron. And when did it become okay for one person to be the boss of everybody? Because that's not what the Iron Islands is about. We should totally just stab Euron. Victorian Greyjoy had cracked. Uh, the Victorian chapters are going to be something. That was my Victorian mean girls. Uh, apt. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it, dude. It was wild when I found out that the girl from Mean Girls was also in uh... Eliza Thornberry. No, um, but that's wild to me too. Which one? Eliza is Lacey Chabert, Gretchen Wieners. I was thinking. I was thinking. Um, Amanda Seyfried, because I just recently watched all of Veronica Mars. So. Oh, okay, okay. Whoa. Anyways, Asha. Feeling to hold deep with Mott, it is now Asha Greyjoy's turn to put up with Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> Theon. 
Once lost as Reek, Theon endures further torture at the hands of Ramsay Bolton and witnesses worse. Jane Poole awakens Theon, and he remembers his name, helping to bust her out of Winterfell and into the snowy drifts surrounding it. John Con. Long has John Connington awaited the moment he can avenge his silver prince, Rhaegar Targaryen, in league with Illyrio and Varys to promote Aegon? Targaryen the Sixth as the rightful ruler of Westeros? Some stony shenanigans ensue. And maybe some stony and salty and sandy shenanigans as well. Get it? Like the Dornish? I do get it. I do get it. Speaking of Dornish, Ariel Hota. Norvoshi, may I add. But Doran, Martell reveals his slow burn plan for revenge against the Lannisters, dispatching the snakes across the country to do their damage, and Arianne to scout Aegon Targaryen's dick. Hota prepares to work with Obara and Balin Swan in finding and stopping Darkstar. Sure doesn't sound like he might die when they both turn on him after Balin Swan is killed. Can't see any of that happening at all. Bummer, I kind of like Arya Hota. I do too, but I think it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Rip. Melisandre. Melisandre reveals just a few of her secrets to us. Like some of her backstory and her morality. But a lady never reveals her age. And now for a Lannister powwow, which is basically where we're going to highlight Cersei and Tyrion before we move into Jamie 1, Adawada. Cersei 1, we'll break it down chapter by chapter for her. Abandoned as a hostage of the faith, Cersei decides she's been betrayed by all of her counselors. She refuses to believe Jaime betrayed her as well. She takes matters into her own hands as well as she can, confessing to some of her crimes. Her <laughs> uncle Kevin answers her questions, though he's pretty pissed about the Lancel stuff. Jamie's disappeared with Brienne of Tarth, harlot, Mace Tyrella's hand, Paxter Redwine is admiral, and Tarly is the justiciar. Sellswords are appearing everywhere, they've lost a Kingsguard, Aerys Oakheart, and Marcella lost an ear, and this is Cersei's big moment, Robert Strong, Kingsguard 2020. And then we have Cersei too. They think that this will break my pride, that it will make an end to me, but they are wrong. Hair grows back. It does. That that did happen to Samson in the Bible. People are really like It was a big deal. Yeah, like Cersei's crazy, like I got that and whatever, but like Cersei the wind's a winner. Just think about it for a second. Yeah. That's dude. peak that's peak entertainment. I cannot wait. Okay, let's talk about Tyrion, I guess. Tyrion. Tyrion is smuggled off the narrow sea and into Illyrio Mopatis' manse, where Illyrio reveals his next new project. He explains he's convinced the Golden Company to break their contract and put swords to Daenerys' side. Illyrio and Tyrion bond over dead wives. Tyrion parts from Illyrio, joining a man named Griff and his son, young Griff. Great disguises. Good job, everyone. <laughs> The reveal comes that young Griff is Aegon, and Tyrion helps instigate what will probably be the next civil war in Westeros. Good job, everyone. Doing great. Dead for shits and giggles. That's... <laughs> he was just like, I'm bored. <laughs> Why not start a war, do crimes, you know? 
So we're going to give you the Jamie Adoida one in overview in a second. But before that, we are going to talk a little about the surrounding chapters. And Jamie's last published chapter as of July 14, 2020... We are recording this. I'm trying not to think about things. Did you know that it's like what? It was the ninth anniversary of Adawada this on July twelfth, twenty twenty. We don't have to talk about it, Eliana. Okay, I'm we sorry. We moved on to read other books. Remember, That's we're healing true. the holes, which is why we're doing this reread podcast. Um, Anyways, so it comes after Tyrion ten and before John ten. Wow, look at all these tens, and in. Tyrion 10. Tyrion is sold into slavery along with Jorah and Penny, avoiding a sellsword who likely wanted to murder him for the bounty that Cersei has placed on his head, which, you know, by asking for dead or alive, a lot of people have died on account of this. It was not a great policy, but anyways, and landing in a wealthy man's care who wants them to perform their show. They perform for Yezin's guests, including Brown Van Plum and Tyrion plays Savas, proving very clever at Pie Show, and Yezin announces that they'll play in the Slaver Pits. I feel like there are definitely some Jamie parallels popping out here, right? How it fits. It's kind of a barren Maidenfair redux in the making, right? Tyrion thinks right now that he can perform his way out of pretty much anything. The seeds are being planted, of course, for his freedom in the long game, but his fate in the shorthand kind of looks a little fiery when you consider those pits being reopened. Interesting. And I think we're going to see a lot of other parallels between their storylines soon, too. And, you know, they're both on very long extended trips and pulling away from their family, thinking about them all the time. Someone else uh, whose storyline, as we personally feel, is wrapped up in Jamie's in a way, is in John 10, Melisandre marries Allie's Karstark and Sigorn at the Wall. John jails Cregan Karstark, who, again, later on, I want to point out that he throws his frozen poops, which is <laughs> honestly an act that must be commended every time. Amazing. He, <laughs> he does it to protect Allie's and takes her side of the succession dilemma. A raven comes in the middle of the wedding feast from Eastwatch reporting a delayed hard home relief crew leaving. This is like the time that my friend got like a fucking work call in the middle of the wedding. Not his wedding, thankfully. And he like left with his laptop and went out into the lobby and took care of it. Anyways, the writer Glendon Hewitt is untrustworthy in John's eyes. Axel Florian presses John further about Val's disappearance. But before he can press too hard, a horn sounds and Val has arrived back with Torment Giants Babe. <laughs> You know, I think this chapter specifically fits well with Jamie, right? I feel like there are a lot of big political moves being made in this chapter. Like, in John's position as Lord Commander, should he be making all of these big decisions? Furthermore, should Jamie as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard be making some of the big decisions and threats and things he's making? No. Because we all know that, yes, while he attended and called himself Kingsguard, a lion still has claws, he is a Lannister, or he's struggling with his Lannister identity, which we are going to explore in this upcoming chapter. Great sandwich for it. But John puts setting a precedent for female inheritance in the North in this chapter. Did you notice that? That's true. I didn't think about that until you brought it up. Hmm, I wonder if it's foreshadowing. Anyways... 
Anyways, uh, Jamie takes some hostages in this chapter, and he hints at choosing a marriage himself for young Miss Bracken in the capital. And then, of course, John and Jamie distrust Janos and Jonos, which we will talk about later. Uh, that's a good point of how it connects to Jamie making political moves. I think it's a discussion, and I do. The roles of the Night's Watch and the King's Guard are a little different. Like, the King's Guard, in many ways, is absolutely like a political tool mm-hmm. used by the Crown, in many ways, like either gifting spots or not, or whatever, whatever Ares was doing too by choosing Jamie. So different different things going on. But for now, you know, we're going to start off with Jamie 1. Jamie arrives at Old Raven Tree Hall, where moss grows amongst its square stone towers. Jamie, of course, thinks that square towers are good and all <laughs> for looks, but they aren't really wise, right? They're built from the predated era uh they were built before round towers were safe so not a lot of research it's old it's an old place it's set amidst a fertile valley the blackwood vale but no trees grow here any longer axes cleared them long ago and now homes and mills and holdfasts have replaced them within the walls of the castle some of the forest remained a godswood a weirwood of colossal size Jamie arrives amidst mud and ashes in the riverlands, the orchards and fields that once surrounded burnt and wasted and the crops gone. It's a really evocative opening, as a lot of these scenes in the riverlands are, and there's some like fantastic imagery right from the get-go that I feel reminds us a lot of the destruction in the riverlands and how that's described from Jamie and Brienne's feast chapters, even Arya's chapters in A Clash of Kings. And I, I personally think that the Jamie 1 Adoida chapter was written probably around the same time as many of the Feast chapters, but got moved to Adoida because of, I think, timing and stuff. But especially with the way that the desolation of the lands on the way to Standfast in The Sworn Sword are written. The Sworn Sword came out 2003, Feast came out 2005, and, you know, Adoida came out 2011, but anyway... Um, but I think that you can see a lot of the same themes and language regarding the feud between Coldmoat and Standfast running throughout this chapter. Like, we'll come back to some of the other ways that it does in a bit, but, um, throughout all this, but you see it in a lot of the feuding, etc. And I want to come back first to some of the imagery that's here up top to once more show how George evokes the presence of Lady Stoneheart. You know, she's kind of like a big deal in the books. She's there in the books at all. And she plays a really big part in how this chapter ends. And it's not said explicitly there as to what's going on. But like, we all know, right? We we, we know what happened from Feast. And it her presence is here right from the beginning. Like, we opened the chapter with this line of like, in the first paragraph, moss grew thick between its ancient stones, spider webbing up its walls like the veins in a crone's legs. And I think that everyone thinks of spider webs is like a thing that goes around with like old and dead shit, like spooky shit in general. Yeah, but this idea of the veins of a crone's legs, like Catelyn Stark wasn't a crone, but Lady Stoneheart is absolutely presented 
as one. And then we have another line of like, some of the trees and their gods were said to be as old as raven trees, squared towers, especially the heart tree, a weirwood of colossal size whose upper branches could be seen from leagues away, like bony fingers scratching at the sky. And from the heart tree slash, you know, the godswoods that we associate with the Starks to the idea of those bony fingers scratching at the sky, I think it just really recalls how the bony dead fingers of Lady Stoneheart in general, and then her final act right when she was Catelyn of just scratching and clawing down her face, scratching at the sky. And then, you know, a lot of this is taking place in the... Um, in the area that's called Widow's Wash, mm-hmm. or by it, like, the setting itself is like, I mean, Catelyn Stark was presented very much as a widow for a good while. I don't think that a lot of these are necessarily foreshadowing. I don't think I would call it that, but it's very intentional imagery. It's very intentional place setting that sets that stage and reminds us of, hey, Lady Stoneheart is part of the story, and this story specifically of Jamie's and you know, it's starting to come forth from the shadows at the end. No, I'd argue it is foreshadowing. I think that's kind of underplaying it because the end of this chapter comes as a complete, like, smack to the face, right? Like, it comes as this moment, like, what? What do you mean Brienne is here and all of a sudden she's taking Jamie somewhere and it's to find Sansa? It's a and date. then Right, like, it's a date. Exactly. But at the end, you're like, no, that's not true. It's not a date. Don't lie to me, Eliana, because you're like... <laughs> Where where are they going to go? Last time we saw Brienne, Stoneheart was like, what are you going to do to save your life? And then now we see Brienne and she's alive-ish and her face is healed. Brienne must have done something to save her own life. Huh, wait a second. Why is she coming for Jamie Lannister, who is reportedly not friends with Lady Stoneheart on the internet. They do not follow each other. <laughs> not mutuals. Not mutuals. No, like, I think that's... On a basic fundamental storytelling level, I think this is so great because it is absolutely meant to kind of give you a petrified feeling, right? Like that stone relation. And it makes me wonder even more about its origin. Like if a weirwood is poisoned or cut down, does it fossilize then? And even further, to take that a step further... There's a lot of theorizing in the community of children of the forest or seers in general being one with the weirwood. And when you have a book where Bran is connecting with his seer powers super intensely and Arya as well, I don't know if the children of the forest or the seers are part of the weirwood, wouldn't that be skin changing? And if you're cutting down a weirwood or poisoning it, aren't you killing seers and magic? So, like, is magic dying? I mean, it just awakened, but you know what I mean. Like, save the magic? Is that a thing? I think it is, but I don't know what it's going to be like in the story. I, 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 It's got to be something, somewhere, somehow. Hmm. <laughs> we have this line of, Everywhere Jamie looked, he saw his father's hand. Even in the bones, they sometimes glimpsed beside the road. So the last chapter, we had Jamie dealing with the whole Edmure thing politically, like being all, oh, I, I did it smoothly, I've moved on, but I think this is the chapter I actually see this big switch in. Now that I can look at it as an overarching experience, 
I think Jamie changes the most in this chapter because he travels into like Bukfa, Egypt, right? Jamie goes into this place where no one lives and he's like, wow, my father completely burnt this place down too. Like, this is the first time Jamie's taken accountability kind of with himself that his father's shed enough blood in the Riverlands that Jamie doesn't have to continue shedding blood. And he does this entire chapter not in the name of his father, where the business before was most definitely closing the Lannister loop and what Tywin would have done with Unmir. This here is more just. It's more fair. It's still shitty in some ways, as we'll discuss, but it's the closest thing to just a Lannister has done recently. Yeah, in many ways he's coming in and he is, like, fixing some problems. He's actually able to end this siege Mm -hmm. in a less messy way than the siege that was kind of sieging at River Run. It was something. Something was happening there. Yeah, he learned. (laughs) Well, I mean, Ryman Frey thought he was doing something. But yes, he learned (laughs) from there. Absolutely. And as you were saying, coming to terms with the sins of his father and things that were done in the Lannister name, I think we see that a lot at the end when he gives his orders at Penny Tree. Yeah. There are no hosts circling Raven Tree, though, before we get to Penny Tree, and the siege Jamie has arrived to is much more intimate than River Run. Like you said, this is a very different siege, and Jamie feels perfectly confident in tackling it. Jonas Bracken is outside with 500 men, no siege weaponry. They plan to starve Blackwood out. It's been nearing half a year at this point. Raven Tree is the last hope, right? It is the end of the Young Wolves' southern kingdom. Once yielded, Jamie can go home to King's Landing. To the king, he thinks, and part of him thinks at the same time to face Cersei. Yeah, he's just like, ugh, to Cersei. And, you know, we're just such a far cry now in terms of that relationship from the Jamie we met at the beginning of Storm, like his big driver was going back to King's Landing because he wanted to be with Cersei. And now we see that, as he thought last chapter about returning to King's Landing, back then he's like, yeah, I'm going because I want to go be back together with Tommen, and I need to be there for my kid, right? And now it turns out we see that it's not just that King's Landing is Tommen, it's that King's Landing has never ever stopped for him being about Cersei like right from the start I mean the only reason that he's been in King's Landing for a long time is because he joined the Kingsguard to be with Cersei so this very city and his sister are absolutely wrapped together in his mind and all these things that Jamie is doing all these new goals and pit stops he's like oh but what if I went to this place on my road trip I mean what's a few more days <laughs> what's, what's a little bit more you know we can go take the long scenic route right and to stall his inevitable return home because he got his like 3am you up text and he's just like mm, mm. nope I never read that don't let your dick guide you idiot don't let your dick guide you but like, he does at the doing. end in a different with a different person anyways different dick direction wait so that works on many levels and Tondra's we get this little line he would have to face her he supposed Assuming the High Septon had not put her to death by the time he got back to the city. Little harsh, but the umbilical cord has definitely been totally cut. Like, they are not ankle to ankle anymore, eh? 
They are not. He's like, what if the High Septon kills her? Hmm. Interesting. He's like, fuck, I hope so. Then I never have to reply to this text message. Honestly, relatable. It's a mood. Uh, Cersei's need for Jaime, though, was definitely real. He's like, well, I probably should go. But Jamie's like, I also know that she's guilty of pretty much every treason that's going to be laid against her. And he's like, I'm just not, I'm just not the knight to see her. I just, especially with one hand, it's just not me. (laughs) (laughs) But she doesn't want, I mean, let's be real. She did want him to save her. She's like, we're going to die together. Anyways, Jamie's column approaches and no one stops them. He finds Jonas Bracken's pavilion. Quickly, on a low rise by the stream, it steers down the raven tree gates and matches the bracket standard. It's brown. There's a red stallion flapping from a pole above. Jamie orders his men to dismount and mingle, but keeps his banner bearers close. The guards outside the tent ask if he would like to be announced, and Jamie's like, nah, I'm gonna announce myself. <laughs> I don't need an introduction. Jamie Lannister. He enters. Jonas enters as well. He doesn't need an introduction into this woman repeatedly. Jamie's like, surprise! Oh my god, it is such a... It's a weird scene. It reminds me of the beginning of the story with Tyrion and him. Yes, I thought that same thing, but in Game of Thrones, in the show. In the show, yeah. Like when in the he show that shows... based off. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think the note entry... The, uh, the entry, no pun intended in general, is significant to how we are supposed to read this, how we are supposed to kind of frame this, right? Because the Tidos that we meet later, not to be confused, or maybe in a mad way to be confused with Tidos Lannister, uh, he appears dignified on his own terms, and he garners respect from Jamie because of it. Like, it's very apparent. But Jamie's introduction to Jonos is a horrible first impression. It's indicative of Jonos's character, which reminds me a lot of someone else with inappropriate, up-jumped, reaching behavior. Janos, Slint, not Jonos, Janos, who John is dealing with in a da- in a, a dance with dragons. But at the same time, the land that's being destroyed around Jonos is sad, right? Like, he's a weasel, but his people... His son died, whether he was his real son or not. He treated him as a son. And one of his daughters was assaulted by the mountain. Like, he's not a horrible dude. He's just looking out for his family. Yeah, he just happened to choose to be on the Lannister side of the war. And I think that that's something that maybe we should dig into in a bit. We'll come back to it. But I I absolutely agree with all of this. Jonos isn't great. But I do think, I, I will say at the very least, he is significantly more likable, in my opinion, than Janos Slint. Um, I thought it was interesting that Jamie notes that Jonos didn't recognize him at first until he saw the cloak and the gold armor. That was the language or something like that. And not Jamie's face or hair or anything, because this time Jamie's here as a Kingsguard and not as a Lannister. And he's bringing that facet of himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very apparent he makes many references, as we'll probably highlight, to his cloak being white Mm. this visit. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, last episode he dressed in Lannister cloak and Lannister leather. Uh, It was very apparent he was on Lannister business, and this does very much feel like it is Kingsguard business, finally, to keep the peace. Mm -hmm. 
So Jonas Bracken is offended at first, but he realizes that it's Jamie Lannister interrupting him fucking this woman, and he sheathes his sword, quote-unquote. Jonos is muscled thick, a little stockier than Jamie, with brown stubble and brown angry eyes. He tells Jamie that Jamie took him unawares. He wasn't told of his coming. And Jamie responds that he seems to have prevented Jonos Bracken's coming. Get it? I do. I, I was actually, it's funny, I forgot that Jamie has that clip right after because I was like, ah, coming. Then I was like, ah, Jamie Lannister, same wavelength, I guess, but. Obviously, George just wrote a, he wrote a lot of really choice puns in these, like, four paragraphs or something like that. So many layers. Onions. Comedic, comedic genius in those moments, but actually. Uh, the woman in the bed tries to cover herself, but unfortunately only has two hands. It must be so hard. Ask Janie. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, she, she's like, oh no, with these two hands, I can only cover two things at once. And Jamie and probably envies this. Yes, if all camp followers though are so modest, projecting once more while he thinks about how Jean- Cersei's nipples are smaller and lighter. Are all camp followers so modest? He wondered. If a man wants to sell his turnips, he needs to set them out. You've been looking at my turnips since you came in, sir. And they're not for sale neither. But if they were for sale, it would be only on Sunday from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. So make sure to get the dodo code and come on by. Yep, between the prices of what is it, like 90 to 110 bells. Like 120 no, or some shit. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I think it is 120. It's definitely been over 110 for me every now Inflation's a bitch. What the fuck? Jamie apologizes and he's like, Hey, my brother had vetted many camp followers. I've only known one. Of course, he is implying Cersei here. Yeah, you know, I, I want to come back to the turnips thing. I was thinking for a while, I was like, why does he call them turnips? I'm like, should I start calling them, like, my breast turnips? Then I realized I do call the turnips nips anyway. And they relate and to that's your nips. Why. Yep. Yes, and that's Jamie Lannister and I are on the same wavelength today. Anyway, um, regarding Jamie apologizing and the camp followers, I, you know, again, as we reflect on Jamie's arc and how it's, he's going on it, it is interesting because back then he wouldn't let anyone bad mouth Cersei. Like in his first chapter, he's like, you're going to talk about Cersei with courtesy or like, but now he's just like, I'm going to insult her all of the time inside my head. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a big switch, right? Like, this is the open time where he's like, yeah, fuck that girl. She ruined my life. Well, Jonas Bracken puts his clothes on backwards a couple times on and off, and uh, he calls the woman a prize of war, an object he took from a Blackwood sworn sword that he killed. Jonas tries to show this woman off to Jamie, telling her to remove her modesty and show him the titty. Jamie ignores and instead calls Jonas out for putting his pants on backwards. Yeah, I don't love that prize of war language. I don't like how Dronos is all like, yeah. But there are a couple of things in this chapter that remind Jamie of Tyrion. But I think here's one that Jamie doesn't know about, but that the reader does and is reminiscent of it the, the moment with Shay and how Tyrion and Shay actually meet, especially in the books. And I feel like the taking of Hildy is a little bit reminiscent of that, uh, mm. except, you know, the guy that 
she was taken from Liv, but whatever. I could see that. And in a way, Hildy, the saucy attitude is very similar mm. to Shay in that aspect. I can see it absolutely. Hildy dresses in an oddly provocative manner. Jamie asks her name. That's what she revealed it as, Hildy. Her face is almost as dirty as her feet. She has enough hair between her legs to pass for Bracken's sister, but there's something appealing about her all the same. She has a pug nose, a shaggy mane of hair, and does a little curtsy, asking if Jonos has seen her other shoe. Jonos is pissed, asking if she thinks him a handmaid, and he tells her to go barefoot if she must. Uh, in a few ways, a couple direct and a roundabout way, this completely reminds me of Brienne. There's, first of all, this descriptor about her bush, which the last mm. bush that Jamie thought about was, of course, Brienne's bush that he saw in Harrenhal in the bathhouses. The ugly descriptor, though, of her, in a way, like the pug nose, uh, those unconventional features remind me of Egret and the sass as well. And in that way, it does remind me of Brienne. Yeah, absolutely. And then she also, like, laughs, like, does that mean the Lord won't be taking me home to pray with his little wife? And then turns to Jamie asking if he has a wife. And I think that's sass. As you said, It. I also got, like, the same vibes of Egret, especially paired to the pug nose thing. And I like that comparison between Brienne and Egret, but I'm also just really confused about Hildy's portrayal in general yeah like she it feels like a bunch of different things were just like crammed into her in this moment and i'm like i none of these feel like a consistent character or person but okay yeah no it is something weird and i feel like she was an asset to jonas bracken's plot in this moment at the most like jonas bracken's not a dick right like we, I mean, he's not great, but we both just established, like, he fought for the North, he decided to join in on a rebellion for what was right, he lost some family, he had some family assaulted and attacked by the Lannister regime. He had plenty of reason to not go all out for the Lannister regime, and it's weird that George reframes him as, like, a dick, right? Like, from the moment you meet him, he's a total piece of shit, and I guess... You know, there can be bad people on both sides. I'm not saying, like, this is a bad people, not on this side, not on the Stark side. But it's just interesting that he reframed him. And I know it has to do a lot with the Blackwood and Bracken feud, which we will get into a little more soon. But it's interesting. Yeah, I think Jonas Bracken's an interesting. He's, a, he's kind of a grayish character and all of that. But to, to Hildy's question, Jamie thinks, no, I have a sister. But responds asking what color his cloak is. Hildy knows that it's white, but the gold hand is much more interesting to her. She's like, I like that in a man. She asks, what do you like in a woman? And he responds, innocence. Innocence. You know, before this passage, Brienne's naivety could be seen as innocence to Jamie, right? The maid of Tarth. Uh, he's really quite obviously thinking a bit about Brienne here. Her innocence, her bush, her unconventional beauty. Hmm. Her bush. Her bush. That was second, not third, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, innocence is appealing to Jamie. I, I think there's a lot to dig into in that, and we'll get to it uh, after this chapter. But I, it's something that he's never going to be able to attain for himself. But then, you know, now Brienne is sullying her sort of innocence and good name by 
all the things that are going on, but also she's betraying Jamie in a way that, when I think about it, you know, delivering someone to kind of their execution, potentially, potentially, maybe, more hurtful than finding out that your undefined fuck buddy uh, that you never set clear boundaries with, who is also your sister, <laughs> might have been sleeping with other people. And, you know, with all of that, I have a crazy thought. Is Brienne delivering Jamie to Lady Stoneheart somewhat akin to, like, Shay incriminating Tyrion during the trial? And I don't mean, like, in terms of morality, like, is it, like, as bad, but this sort of, like, parallel, maybe, that the story is trying to draw between the brothers? Mm-hmm. There's something in that. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I guess this is time to talk about what I think is going to happen in the future, right? And we will talk about this more when we get to the Brienne stuff later, but everyone knows the bad show's bad. In season five, Game of Thrones did this stupid plot where Brienne went north and decided to be on a vengeance spree to kill Stannis. That was Brienne's closure of her plot. She spent approximately one whole season waiting at the window for Sansa, watching for Sansa's first light, saying she's here to protect Lady Sansa to fulfill her vow to Catelyn, and the one day that Sansa put a light out in her rinky-dink tower where she was being tortured all the time, uh, Brienne was busy killing Stannis, the very one time. So that sounds very silly because it was. That season wasn't real. It was awful. That's the biggest reason why everything sucks in life. Anyways, I digress, but there's something that... Something I think was interesting about that was that Brienne chose her quote-unquote show honor, right? Like killing Stannis in that situation over saving Sansa Stark. And it makes me wonder if her going to get Jaime and bringing him back to Stoneheart instead of the Hound, if she doesn't have some sort of, or if she's not trying to come up with some sort of plan while A, on the way back, and B, I think Jamie and her are likely to fight their way out, and I kind of have this little theory that they might go run around the Riverlands together and skirt their duty, and the show version, the the show version of them, like, so while they might have a hot lead on possibly saving one of the Stark sisters, whether it's Sansa or whether it's Arya, and I think as... Some people might have read my theory about Arya killing Lady Stoneheart. I think Arya might be left to end Lady Stoneheart, but I wonder if it's actually Brienne who has been looking for Sansa. After all this time, Arya is right there under her nose. Arya's right across the river. And during that time period, while Arya has to kill Lady Stoneheart, Brienne's busy finally forsaking her honor with Jaime Lannister. He's making a knight of her. With his sword, if you know what I mean. I mean, it sounds like we're, you're saying that there's going to be a long night, a long many nights. Are you calling his dick the night? Know. Because I meant like actually just spending nights together, but no, yeah, that too. Like maybe some snuggling, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah, my like sex. little. I don't know. I, yes. I just think that. <laughs> Brienne has been so honor-bound, and after getting half of her face torn off and, like, being unable to trust Nimble Dick and seeing everything go to fucking shit in pieces in front of her, maybe for a second she'll be like, fuck the system, fuck my vows, fuck Jamie Lannister, I'm gonna. It'll be, like, her shorter version of what Jamie's been doing for the past many years, right? But a little, at least a little bit more... 
Yeah. Alive. Joyous. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. And I think that's a joy ride. Be so it's special. a joy ride. It is literally a joy ride. And I think that it may end similarly in that the bad show did something with Jamie being, you know, afraid of commitment or whatever. <laughs> um, and I think that's something true because we've seen how toxic this relationship has been for him and Cersei. And that's been something for 30 something years that he's dealt with. So, like, I don't know if Jamie and Brienne will have something more than that, but I do think that they will have some sort of foray in the Riverlands. Yeah, and I mean, to his, in his defense, he made a big ass commitment. It was called joining the King's Guard. That totally bit him in the ass. So, I could understand being afraid of commitment. Yeah, if that's your story. Other commitments in Jamie's life. We have this line: "He thought of Marcella." I will need to tell her, too. <laughs> the Dornishman might not like that. Dorn Martell had betrothed her to his son in the belief that she was Robert's blood. Knots and tangles, Jamie thought, wishing he could cut through all of it with one swift stroke of his sword. Oh, I get it. It's about the it's about the Pyrenees knot. The, the oh, meta, George yeah, writing. Meta. I love that. And, and it's funny it's you funny. say that because I was thinking of Joffrey cutting up the book. Mm, that too. That too. I'm sure George wishes he could do that too. <laughs> well, he did do that with these two books, Affleck and Adela. Literally, yeah, literally. Yeah. <sighs> Logistically, to me, I just don't know that Jamie's ever going to see Marcella again. It's a possibility, but I'm a firm believer in like the sack of King's Landing 2.0, a yet unreleased theory by Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr. And the Girls Gone Canon podcast, this theory encompasses that the Dornish will convince Cersei to crown Marcella over Tommen, calling Tommen a lost cause to rebel forces, the Tar- the Tyrells. Female secession, yada yada. Interesting. They will have uh, them open the gates for the invasion of Aegon and the Dornish army and sack the Lannisters' King's Landing. It will be a sack of King's Landing 2.0, electric boogaloo, reverse it all. I don't know that Jamie gets to King's Landing in time for that, though, because I think that has to take place the end of the Winds of Winter. The Dornish are going to be in Cersei's chapters when we go back. Like, whether they're apparent, I know uh, Tyene Sand will obviously be hiding out with the Faith. We will see her in the background, but we're going to see some Dornish chapters when we get into the Winds of Winter. We'll see them appearing in Cersei's chapters. I think that Jamie yeah, will have a absolutely. confrontation with Cersei, maybe one final confrontation, but I just, I don't know, with all of his stalling, like you said, I don't know that he'll get to King's Landing till the very end, at earliest. If not, I, I think Cersei could flee to Casterly Rock. End it there. Yeah, I mean, I think Cersei has to go to Casterly Rock. I don't think, I think that's something that's different from what happened in the show, and... She has to go back, like, and also, it sounds to me like you're saying that you don't think that Jamie and Bronn go to Dorne and fight the Sand Snakes. <sighs> you don't think that Marcella and Alaria Sand have a poison ivy moment? I don't think that. No, Eliana. I think Ilaria Sand stays in Dorne. How's that for some thoughts? Wow. Wow. This anyway. brought to you by Ariane 
1 and 2 in The Winds of Winter by Girls Gone Canon, available for Stranger Tier patrons and above. This brought to you by our also upcoming POV Ari's Oak Card. <laughs> but before then, Ari's Oak Card took a vow, and Jamie tells Hildy that he had also sworn a vow. <laughs> and she says, No turnips for you. Mood. As she is told to leave by Jonas, she darts out half clothed. Good for her. Squeezing Jamie's cock through his britches as she reminds him of her name. Hildy, and I just wanted to tell everyone that I, too, for the first time in weeks since it was released, I did not buy turnips this week. I haven't bought turnips in, like, a month. Yeah, I respect I respect that of you, but... Thank you. Thank you. I knew I wasn't going to get a large spike this week, so I just didn't buy any turnips this week. Very forward of Hildy to grab Jamie's cock. Um... Uh, Little, it's not little much. Weird. Don't think it's great. Probably unwelcome. No. Jamie was like yeah. confused, but you know, whatever. I guess she was like, "I said no many times." Guess George is just using it as a lark, so we'll just move on. Jamie asks how Mrs. Bracken is to Jonos, and Jonos is like, "No clue. All she does is pray." When Tywin burnt their castle down, Mrs. Bracken had decided the gods were punishing them. Yes, and I don't know, I'm like, so Lady Bracken is going Lancel Lannister here, and Jonas is doing the thing that Jamie said that Gatehouse Amy would do, I guess? Yeah, I think the chapter really plays out like a varied version of the last three Jamie chapters in AFA, Aww. right? In slightly varied ways. Until the very end, ends kind of a surprise. I mean, it's like Jamie is political grinding until he gets enough XP to level up and leave Cersei for good. Or, as Ilan Payne said, drags finger across the throat, you know? Um, I don't know. The conversation, though, shifts to the Blackfish, who Jonos heard had escaped. Jonos, of course, had respected and liked the man, but claims Brynden knows better than to come for the Bracken's aid, as they'd bent the knee, like he should have. And, of course, he can't be at Raven Tree because he would have had to pass the siege lines, Tito's Blackwood will yield soon enough anyway, as they're down to rats and roots within the castle. Jamie agrees they'll yield before the sun goes down, because Jamie means to offer terms to end the war. Jonos shrugs in a Bracken-themed tunic, asking if Jamie wants a horn of ale, but Jamie declines. This kind of reminds me of Guest Right, that Jamie's like, I don't want your ale, I'm just gonna pass it on. I don't want any of your brand mm. of gastrite. I'm not welcome here. He does that for a couple of things. I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, just like in a sort of courtesy way. Yeah, like he's not here to be friendly. He's not here to have gastrite. He's here to do his duty and leave. Yeah, he's not here for a business lunch. Just to Yeah, serve. not writing it off on his taxes. Yeah, he's not. Jonas, though, asks then, what terms do you mean to offer? And Lord Blackwood will need to confess his treasons. That's some of the things that uh, he, they want. Break his allegiance to Stark and Tully and swear before the gods and men to be a leal vassal of Harrenhal and the throne. Lol, Harrenhal. Um, right. <laughs> I forgot that. So did Em and Frey. Um, they'll take a pot or two of gold and a hostage as well to keep the rebellion quelled. Bracken suggests Jamie take Blackwood's daughter as he has six sons, but one daughter who 
can't be more than seven years old and he loves that girl. Bracken then asks, what about the lands that they were supposed to receive? There's the East Bank of Widow's Wash. He just lists out, like, his fucking Christmas wish list. East Bank of Widow's Wash, all the islands in the stream, Grindcorn Mill, Lord's Mill, Muddy Hall, Ravishment, Battle Valley, Old Forge, Villages of Buckle, Black Buckle, the Cairns, Claypool, Mudgraves Market Town, Waspwood, Lorgan's Wood, Green Hall, Honey Tree Hives, and of course, Barba's Teats, Missy's, if you're a Blackwood Historian fan, and I, I respect Jonos saying, you know, laying out there the things that he wants, hoping for it. I, I know he knows he's not going to get it all. You're going to get negotiated down. I mean, that's always yeah. what happens when you ask for a raise. And interestingly enough, it. there aren't, these are, a lot of these are made up places just for this chapter, but there is one of the mills, Lord's Mill. It was burned by Vagar during Dance of the Dragons, written by Amond. I wonder if that's foreshadowing in some sort of way. Maybe Lord Bracken will later refuse to kneel and be burnt by some sort of dragon and of course again Aemon Targaryen so it was a green who burnt him so maybe it's Aegon's reign that will come down on him but it could be Danny's. yeah interesting some of the imagery from earlier on also like reminds us of the blacks and the greens when they're talking about how the landscape looks so mm. the dance of the dragons is in like civil wars big part of the backdrop of this chapter. Bracken has, of course, marked all of the things on his wish list, uh, on his negotiation, visibly on a map for Jamie. And Jamie's like, mm, This is a giant amount of land. You'd been, be increasing your land by 25%. Again, good for you, Jonas. Try and get that 25% raise. Jonas says that these lands were once stolen from them, that the Blackwoods stole them. It does kind of suck that they're taking it from the Blackwoods, though, but, you know, in a vacuum. Jamie points out Penny Tree between the teeth. He's like, what about this one? Which was once theirs, but they're like, no, 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 that's been a royal thief for hundreds of years. Hey, that's Penny Tree, like Duncan Egg. We're going to talk about Duncan Egg later, for sure. Yes. Yes. Our first love. Uh, when we first talked about it, <laughs> that's true. Our first date, not when you took me to Lady Stoneheart. Oh my god! <laughs> later, later. Oh, Jonas that. says that Tywin promised him these lands as long as they subdued Lord Titus. But Jamie's like, I don't really think he was subdued. I saw Stark and Tully banners flying, so maybe you didn't do your job. Jonas is like, if I didn't have a skeleton crew, I would storm the castle right now and send them to their graves. And Jamie's like, then your men that you are ordering to do so would be doing the subduing, not you. Jamie really is taking pride, obviously, in the fact that he's been able to do some no bloodshed uh, siege stopping. Jamie asks to keep his map, and Jodo's responds that this map is Jamie's, but the land on the map is theirs. A Lannister always pays his debts, and they fought for the Lannisters. Yeah, again, I think Jonas isn't the greatest, but I do think that this is a good line, and it's lines like these that show you that he is no Ryman Frey or Evan Frey. For sure. Jamie reminds Jonas that they fought against the Lannisters also, but Jonas says, I've been pardoned by the king, and also, by the way, I lost a nephew and a bastard son that 
the mountain burnt and stole our harvest and lands. And Jamie's like, well, you know what? Whatever. Okay. The mountain's dead now. And so is Tywin. And I'm not having any of these flippy floppies. <laughs> and Jonah says, well, I bent the knee because I saw no sense in dying or spilling bracken blood. And Jamie thinks that some men may say that Lord Blackwood has been more honorable. Jamie's sympathies with Titus Blackwood are a lot different from the sympathies his father did not have with the Titus in their life, right? Like with Titus Lannister, Tywin would have and did hire Jonas Bracken, who's a shady motherfucker. I mean, we see it here. Yes, there's some shades of gray behind him, but I think we're supposed to see him, a la George's word, as a shady motherfucker. Jamie has more sympathy for his Titus, Titus Blackwood, than Tywin did for his Titus. And this is kind of the man Jamie wants to be, right? Like, he wants to be more like Titus Blackwood. Honorable. Announcing that his father's dead is part of this, too. He's uh, retracting what his father did. He's saying, like, curse my father's name. He's the one that did all this, man. He keeps seeing the destruction his dad has brought throughout this region and reiterating and reinforcing to people, I am a knight of the Kingsguard. I'm the Lord Commander. I am not a Lannister. This chapter specifically, he is going strong on it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting the things that you're saying right about who he has more sympathy for, Tidos, and that he thinks of Lord Blackwood as more honorable versus Jonas because... I think that Jonas's perspective and what he did is perfectly understandable in the context of the losses that he's already suffered. What's the point of suffering any more of them, right? Like, the idea that Jamie sort of puts Lord Titus Blackwood on a pedestal for that, for, for maintaining that loyalty, and that Jamie's heroes, right, involve Brynden Tully, the Blackfish, and... He doesn't seem to respect Edmure very much, but like this idea of honor and not bending the knee right away. It's almost like Jamie respects the people who don't like bend the knee to the Lannisters right away, or it, it, it almost seems like he respects people in general who don't follow the Lannisters at all more than he does any of their vassals. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what that says or means other than, like, it shows maybe his shifting sympathies. Yeah. But also, he so values that idea of loyalty in a way, and I wonder if it's kind of because he wasn't able to to adhere to it? I don't know. Or if it's, like, that loyalty to that person's initial principles, because that's something that he tried to do, but then was condemned for. It's a little of both, maybe. I don't know. I think so. Jamie says he'll grant Jen Jonas some of the land since he subdued some of the Blackwoods. <laughs> and Jonas accepts this and then recommends some of his own counsel, which is about House Blackwood's treacherous history. His revisionist history is about how the Brackens ruled before the Andal invasion, and the Blackwoods were their vassals until they usurped and betrayed their crown. He says this makes each Blackwood a turd cloak, and that Jamie should remember this when sentencing them. So if we go back to some of the so-spake Martins that George has been quoted while doing interviews at conventions or doing emails with fans back in the day when that used to happen. In 2003, in a so-spake Martin, George said, The feud between the Brackens and the Blackwoods goes back to the Age of Heroes. Both houses ruled the Riverlands as kings in various times. 
They were also divided by religion. The Brackens went over to the new gods, while the Blackwoods remained with the old. Of course, we know the publishing schedule very vaguely. George developed this a bit more within the time between feast and publishing dance, right? In 2005, he detailed some of Aegon IV's bastards for Amoka's art. Brendan Rivers, an albino, Mylessa, Missy, Rivers' son. He wielded many things, but a weirwood longbow is kind of significant in this story, I would say. Brendan Rivers matches the description of his mother, Missy. He's slender, he's a little smaller than Damon and Agor, it fits. And of course, Bittersteel Agor Rivers, son of Barba Bracken, came out with dark hair and purple eyes. This is where a lot of this feud has kept its more recent momentum from. Bloodraven and Bittersteel's feud is very prominent in this story. Absolutely, and I think that's something that we have to remember from all of this, and again, especially because I, I think it was written close to the time some of those Feast chapters were, and I believe that, what, the Mystery Knight precedes the publishing of this as well, so we get some of that Bloodraven tidbits, and then all, we get to dig into, like, his current day family a little. But in general, you know, it's lines and, and moments of this history like this and the history between Blackwood and Bracken that remind me of some of the way the the issues are portrayed in the Sworn Sword, right? Like, they're like, well, we were kings of this and we own this thing. And that kind of is what happens when Dunk is thrown into the middle of um, the, the issues between the Osgreys and the Webbers and... Osgrays are like, for a thousand years before the conquest, we were the marshals of the North March. A score of lesser lordlings did us fealty in a hundred nights. Then he, like, says this entire resume about why they are the rightful owners here. Very much like the Brackens and the Blackwoods. And then Lady Rohan Weber gives her own rebuttal and her own resume of, like, so it is, as the river is called the Mander, though the Manderleys were driven from its banks a thousand years ago. Blah 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 blah. And showing how, like, the histories are a little different, but, you know, again, conjuring, like, George was really interested in this idea of, like, long, ongoing disputes, especially mm-hmm. against the backdrop of the Blackfires and the Targaryens. Yeah, it feels really relevant as we move forward, right? It's, uh, especially with Tyrion's plot, that remains important yeah. even in the Lannister plot. It's all it's all driving towards that which, you know, comes forward in this book specifically. And then, you know, one day <laughs> so I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Anyways, we'll move on. Promises. Yes, some promises in the story. Jamie promises that of course he will choose a good punishment for Titus Blackwood and he makes his way to the Blackwood ramparts to the moat in front of it. There's this line that it is a deep trench lined with stone, its green waters choked by scum and that is an absolute metaphor for the Blackwoods being surrounded by I guess their very own phrase, right? The uh, Jonas Brackens of the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Bracken, I guess, did have a more successful siege. True. It's only six months. Only six months. Well, there were Jamie was like, I don't know, they're probably down to rats and stuff soon. But anyways, he moves to command Kenos to horn blow. He doesn't need to. 
Titus Blackwood, a man of honor, has the drawbridge lowered and meets him mounted on a pale destrier. Uh, we have this line describing him. Very tall and very thin, the Lord of Raventree had a hooked nose, long hair, and a ragged salt and pepper beard that showed more salt than pepper. In silver inlay on the breastplate of his burnished scarlet armor was a white tree, bare and dead, surrounded by a flock of onyx ravens taking flight. A cloak of raven feathers fluttered from his shoulders. I just thought this was a great little passage describing his looks, his appearance, because it is kind of a significant costume. And it's funny that it stands out so much, because back in 2005, George was quoted during a character writing panel at a convention saying, Titus Blackwood has developed a popular following, though he's hardly had any lines, and his main distinguishing feature is his raven feather cloak and his yellow and black armor. Now, he goes on to kind of talk about what he calls Boba Fett syndrome, which he applied to Oberyn Martell, and that it basically is how a side, non-character, captures people's imaginations way beyond the creator's intent, and it gets a cult following, and that he still gets fan letters where people say, I love Titus Blackwood. Can we get more info about him? He absolutely called Oberyn Martell one of his Boba Fett characters, and I think that is very interesting. And at the same time, not to fear because we got more Titus Blackwood between that time period, right? Like, mm. Feast came out, people were like, give us more Titus Blackwood, and George gave us more Titus Blackwood in a Domina. Is that how I feel about Strong Bobos? Is it the Boba Fett effect? But anyway, um, I think that's a really, really good tidbit about uh, how we ended up getting a lot more Titus Blackwood. Maybe, maybe it was written later, right? I don't know what month in 2005 this came out, but it's obviously something that he was thinking about during that year, and it's so funny. This is, this is a not related that the Boba Fett effect get he talks about it in relation to Oberyn Martell who ends up later on in the TV show being played by Pedro Pascal the Boba Fett effect leads to the TV show right of course the Mandalorian that everyone thought was gonna be about Boba Fett but then it wasn't and he Pedro Pascal ends up playing the Mandalorian anyways that's all a literal Boba Fett character it actually literally he is Anyway, we came full circle. So Titus Blackwood has been expecting Jamie Lannister and he's he's feeling both ways, right? He's angry, but at the same time, he's relieved this siege has been going on for a very long time. Jamie asks if he's ready to yield and Titus answers he is, but to the king, not to Jonos Bracken. Jamie, of course, understands. Blackwood's hesitant. He asks if he needs to get down right now and kneel in the mud before Jamie, amongst the hundred eyes watching. But Jamie's like, no, I'm not a dick. You can kneel in your solar after we make terms. So this actually recalls two things for me. One is it reminds me of this scene at the very beginning of A Game of Thrones in Ned's first chapter, where we have this line of, Robert's queen, Cersei Lannister, entered on foot with her younger children, the wheelhouse in which they had ridden a huge blah 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 blah. Um, Ned knelt in the snow to kiss the queen's ring, while Robert embraced Catelyn like a long-lost sister. So it's kind of like, man, I, I mean, like, the, the forcing someone to kneel is absolutely an exertion or demonstration of power, and Jamie's saving that, helping Titus 
safe base for that. But the other is it really contextualizes to me the magnitude of what Torin Stark, the king who knelt, did by, uh, you know, being the king who knelt uh, after he was like, hey, everyone in the north, we're going to go march south to fight the Targaryens. And then Getzer is like, fuck. And then just kneels in front of everyone after making them all do that. It really shows that this is an incredibly humble move on his part and potentially embarrassing. Um, but I, I, I think about Torrin Stark a lot in this chapter because along with Tytos being part of it, I think it kind of runs through Jonos Bracken a little. We've been talking about Jonos a lot and his decision to be like, I mean, it doesn't make sense for me to just like let more of my people die. We the Starks lost, and I lost people that I love. My daughter was assaulted. Why keep that going? And I think that's a big part, right, of the thought process that must have been going through Torrin Stark's head when he was like, what if we just knelt? I mean, Catelyn asks for it, right? Catelyn straight up says, like, just make a peace, Rob. Um, And at the same time, yes, that is absolutely honorable to save. And in a way, these are those two forces meeting, right? You have the person that wanted to make a peace, and you have the person that is willing to do whatever it takes to keep the rebellion going to the last spark kind of juxtaposed against each other in this chapter, and I think that's very gripping. I think they're two very different people, and it's very interesting that Jamie is more concerned with the latter and more meticulous with choosing the latter's quote-unquote punishment with connecting with Titus Blackwood, he's more concerned with how this comes off to Titus than he is to Jonos. In a way, does it mean, like, has Jamie confused the definitions of honor and valor? I think so, in a way. I would say that I don't know if it's just confusing honor and valor. I think it's rearranging his priorities, right? Before, he would have absolutely understood the worth in Jonos Bracken, at the very beginning of A Feast for Crows of Afok, uh, mm. he would have understood what using a man like Jonas Bracken meant. In fact, we see him working with men as shitty as Jonas Bracken in his shitty ways. And I think the fact that he has switched to understanding and sympathizing with Tydos's side in this chapter more, like significantly more, I think that speaks volumes. Hmm. Of the man that he is and the man that he wants to be. I mean, Taito says, the blackfish, he's a good man. And Jamie's like, in his head, yeah, dude, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. And uh, to this, Taito calls Jamie's act of mercy here. Chivalrous beckons him into his hall. And although it may not be luxurious, it is at least courteous. The keep is made of lofty timber, and a fire burns in the solar. The solar is a high-ceilinged room with dark oak beams, wide lattice doors, looking out to the godswood. And Jamie watches the godswood through the diamond panes of yellow glass. The weirwood is ancient and colossal, far bigger than the one in the stone garden at Casterly Rock. But it's also dead and bare, and we get the other side of the revisionist history that Jonos gave us earlier. The Brackens poisoned their weirwood a thousand years ago and has not grown a leaf since. The maester state will turn to stone in a thousand more years, because weirwoods never rot. Jamie asks, what about the ravens and... Tito's response that they cover the trees like black leaves and have been doing so for thousands of years because it's really fun because in this book we start to actually get and learn about why that happens. Why ravens would attach themselves 
to Weirwoods. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Maze. Which does uh-huh. make me think, like, that means that Bloodraven's probably watching and Brant's probably watching what's happening. And that also makes me wonder, so that means petrified trees you can still see from? If they're, I mean, I think it's like that the trees aren't there, so they found like a loophole, right? They're like, we'll just put birds there. It's like the same fucking thing. Not really, but kind of. <laughs> well, ty- put a bird on it. Oh my god. So Titos inquires how his liege lord Admir is for, you know, his honor's sake, a horse's sake. Jamie explains he's going to Casterly Rock and that his wife Rosalind will remain at the twins until the baby is born. Once the baby's born, they'll join each other as long as Admir behaves. He will live a long life. But Titos Blackwood doesn't really agree. Long and bitter, a life without honor. Until his dying day, men will say he was afraid to fight. Unjustly, Jamie thought. It was his child he feared for. He knew whose son I am, better than mine own aunt. <laughs> he doesn't fucking let that go. I never. He's never gonna let it go. He's like, I am my father's son, goddammit, do the DNA test. But there is something in this. Jamie thinks it was his child he feared for about Edmir. A man without honor, and the quote, Until his dying day, men will say he was afraid to fight. Mm. Are these not things people are going to say about Jamie when he dies? It's things that they're saying about him now, right? Like the blackfish calls him out on it. Yeah. So I think that's a really good point. It was his child he feared for. Yeah. Everything's for Tommen, right? He keeps doing things in the king's name now because he has no other name to do them in. You know who doesn't want to buy turnips? Tommen. <laughs> Someday he'll learn. Play the, the nip market. Jamie calls the choice Edmure's and that Brynden would have chosen blood. They both agree and Titus inquires after Brynden Tully. Jamie tells him the offer that was made. Surrender. Take the black. But he fled instead. Can you believe? Smiling, <laughs> Jamie asks if Titus was hiding him by any chance. Ha <laughs> ha. Titus denies having the blackfish. She then asks if Titus would tell him if he were, and then Titus smiles this time. And then they're like, alright, let's talk terms. Titus asks if he needs to kneel now, and Jamie's like, we can just say you did. It's awkward. They reach an agreement on the big stuff, such as confession, fealty, pardon, and gold and silver. Jamie shows him the lands that he will require, and Titus chuckles, calling it the Turncloak's Reward. Jamie calls it a smaller reward than he imagines, and Titus names what he's willing to give up. Woodhedge, crossbow ridge, and buckle. Jamie pushes him, saying, you know, you have to suffer a little bit for treason. Give up one of your mills, also for tax purposes, because Jonas wants it. And Titus is like, alright, you can have Lord's Mill and Honey Tree. He has relatives under the Cairns, which Jamie had originally suggested. And then the last thing, a hostage. Titus looks stricken when his daughter Bethany is mentioned. He offers his widowed aunts, nieces, nephews, cousins, but Jamie says, no, it's got to be a child of your own blood. Tito says, Bethany's eight, gentle, full of laughter, sheltered, sweet. I know, very sad, very innocent. We know a lot of good, sheltered, sweet girls from this story that went to King's Landing and shriveled up inside. Jamie says it would be good for Tommen to have a friend in her, but Tito kind of calls him out on that and is like, more like a friend he can hang if Titus displeases him. Yeah, and I 
I mean, to be honest, like, Tidos is right to fear for his daughter after what we all saw happen to Sansa and Arya during their big city adventures. And I don't know that Tidos heard a lot because it was kind of kept hush-hush, but I'm sure there were some rumors like, damn, the Stark girls are missing. And I think that you have something interesting here that in Jamie's chapter that contrasts with how this whole thing goes down with Cersei. Because Jamie here knows what he's asking for. He's like, we want a hostage, and then dresses it up in the packaging of like, oh yeah, they'll be a friend to the king, a ward. As opposed to Cersei, who's asking Tana, like, oh, why don't you bring your son Russell to court? Like, he can totally play and like be friends with Tommen. And T- Tana knows better. She's like, no, that's how you end up in a hostage situation. But Cersei like, doesn't think about it like that. But it, she totally would if she needed to. I mean, it really does not help that they had Ned Stark executed yeah, on Baylor's true. steps. And that Sansa was beaten in front of court, in front of like the Crownlands, right? And like a handful of different people from different courts that were there. Um, word spreads fast, and it, it does not help that situation whatsoever. Like, these are incredibly smart ideas and terms. We see John using them simultaneously in A Dance with Dragons, and Daenerys as well, right? Like, they take hostages that they grow very fond of, and that, of course, as you and I have discussed, we're worried for those hostages. We're very worried for some of those hostages, and it's probably fair to say that Hoster, Blackwood, and... The Bracken girl, we should be worried for them. Probably. Yeah. Also, I will appreciate that his name is Hoster. Sucking up, right? To the extreme. Oh, not just that, because later on he's called Host the Hostage. Hoster the Hostage. Hostage, yeah, no, it's very illiterate. I love it. And Just like coming and swords. And I love that his father is named Titus for... Oh, wow. Titus, it's the same generation, I mean. A lot of that. True. True, the Nine Penny King's generation. Yes. So, Titus asks Jamie to consider one of his sons instead of his daughters, like Ben, who's 12, thirsty for adventure, and he could squire. Jamie, of course, is like, I have so many fucking squires. <laughs> he says, every time I take a piss, they fight for the right to hold my cock. I love that. Uh, he inquires about his sons. He's like, I heard you had six sons, not four. So what's up with that whole revision? Uh, Titus then explains, Lucas was murdered at the Red Wedding, and Robert, my youngest, died nine days ago of loose bowels. So no, four sons. Thanks for rubbing it in, Kingslayer. Sad. Jamie's like, I only have two, so I get it. Two kids. Now only one. Yeah, one. One son. Well, no, no, son. Son. Sorry. Sorry. I want to talk about daughters this chapter. Again, interesting. Do you think that maybe it's setting a precedent? I, I think it is. I, I'm not sure entirely, you know, where it goes for Jamie specifically, right? Like, and how it's going to affect him internally. I don't know that it's going to be quite like, oh, wow, my daughter's dying in mm-hmm. my arms on this boat coming from Dorne. <laughs> Definitely not that. Oh um, anyways, the phrase hadn't returned Lucas's bones. Titus comments that he'd like to bury him, which um, there's a lot of that going on in this book. Yep. Brynden is his eldest, his heir, and then he comes to Hoster who is a bookish boy, and Jamie says, you know what, there are a lot of books in King's Landing, partially thanks to Tyrion. I will take Hoster as a hostage. I love that he just uh, was like, I, I mean, I wonder if his daughter's name is, Min- oh wait, it's Bethany, not Manissa. I'm like, did you just name them after Tully people? 
Tidos is relieved that Jamie is taking Hoster as his hostage. He hesitates, though, before boldly saying, hey, you know, you should make sure to take a female hostage of Jonos because he has all daughters and no real sons. Jamie's like, um, he had a bastard who died in the war. And Tidos says, I don't know if uh, Harry is actually his son. He was blonde and good looking. Jonos Bracken was not. There's definitely something here that like, Jonos Bracken has a bastard son that doesn't look like him. Jamie has fathered a bastard son who doesn't look like his quote-unquote father, Robert Baratheon. I was thinking something else of, like, he's not a bastard, but a Harry who's blonde and good-looking. Yeah, like Harry the heir. Yeah. Tidos invites Jamie to eat with him, but Jamie feels bad stealing from starving people and says he must head to River Run, and Tidos says River Run or King's Landing, and Jamie's like, I have both, I guess. And he's stalling. Oh, yeah. Okay, he's definitely stalling, but I do want to introduce a thought to the forefront. I want you to think on it. You don't have to respond now, but, like, mm-hmm. he pretty loudly said his goal next was King's Landing, right? Like, he's like, I'm taking a hostage to King's Landing. King's Landing's our direction. And when Tidos asks... Jamie says he has to go to River Run. So, like, was he really planning on going to River Run? Or was that some sort of lie that he just got caught in? Or, I mean, now he says he's going there. Is this a weird lie of sorts? Like, is Tidos questioning the information for some sort of reason? What I'm saying is, is there a great Riverlands conspiracy theory? Interesting. Just thoughts. We'll come back to it. Interesting. Especially in the context of uh, Tyrion being told they're going one place before and going somewhere else Mm -hmm. back then. Hoster, though, is ready to leave within the hour. He's gangly, awkward, taller than his father, yet no older than 16. He introduces himself as Haas, grinning kind of snarkily. And he's like, my friends call me Haas. And Jamie's like, oh, okay, whatever, sure. (laughs) And he's like, does he think this is a game? Like, we're not fucking bros. I'm not going to call you Haas. And then Haas asks... So, who are the men accompanying him? And Haas answers that they are my friends, my brothers. And Jamie's like, I'm not your brother. Yeah, he's like, I'm not your friend, guy. It it goes on for a minute. He launches into this speech to Tidos. And he's like, I will send Hoster's head on a fucking platter to you, John the Revelator. Like, you will get it if there's even a touch of Riverland outlaws and rebels in Raven Tree Hall. Like, if you're housing Don Darien, Sandor Clegane, Lady Stoneheart, any of these people, it's over for the Blackwoods. He's like, I am not Ryman Frey. Big burn. Tidos is like, I know who I'm dealing with, Kingslayer. You know how every interaction with Jamie has, he's like, he opens up and he's like, I'm getting vulnerable with you. And then he goes in public and he's like, you have cooties, I don't like you, new dad. Because he keeps adopting dads faster than Jon Snow in this fucking last two books. Yeah, even also new sons, even though he just tried not to get another one right now. But <laughs> for sure, I mean, Jamie's like big Sundari mood here. He's like, I don't like you. Constantly, constantly shifting. Jamie says he wishes him good harvest and the joy of the king's peace. And then off he fucks, but not too far. Bracken awaits outside Raven Tree, wanting the juicy goss. Not the hoss. Jamie tells him it's over and to go plant his brand new fields. Then he tells him, 
Woody's one. Bracken mocks the hostage that Jamie took, Hosser saying that he is water for blood and weak. And I will say, for what it's worth, Jamie does have quite a few waters for blood. You might know them as Tommen or Marcella. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Okay, that's true. And I almost, like, for a second, I was like, you mean hills? But no, they were raised in the Crownlands, which is remarkably usually waters. So... Yes, he does have waters for blood. Great call out. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Jamie asks how many daughters that Jonos has and tells him to pick one of the five to come to court and attend the Queen Regent, which he impresses upon Jonos, who's pissed, is an important job. So make sure, you know, you tell your daughter this is a very big deal. He spurs honor away and soon it's all in the rear view. Night falls as they get near Widow's Wash, and they ask Hoster where to camp for the night. Hoster shows them Missy's teats, and Jamie's like, Ah, Penny Tree is beyond there, according to this map. Hoster confirms, and they decide to camp there for the night, and maybe question some villagers about the blackfish. Yes, Jamie. But what if we made a scenic detour on to this hot de- tourist destination, and I'm totally not stalling, Lannister? <laughs> You're not wrong. He asks Hoster's take on the Bracken versus Blackwood dispute regarding the Teats. Hoster says they used to just be the Teats 100 years ago. And he starts to explain what boobies are. And Jamie's like, kid, I know what those are. Please continue. And he starts thinking about the camp followers' boobs, actually, speaking of. Honestly, this is character development. Like, it is good that Jamie is thinking about unrelated boobies. Yes. Literally. Boobies that are not related to him. Yes. Jamie asks what changed, and we learn about Aegon the Unworthy, who took Barba Bracken as his mistress. Many said she was buxom, and when Aegon went hunting in the woods at Stonehenge, he named these hills for his mistress. Jamie doesn't actually know this story, but he knows how it goes immediately and guesses the next part, that Aegon later took a Blackwood girl as his mistress as well. Missy was said to be beautiful but slender, and Barba called her flat-chested. King Aegon gave Missy Barba's teats in exchange. Hoster says that it's written by maesters of both sides, that in the Age of Heroes, the Blackwoods were kings, and the Brackens were petty lords who bred horses. They didn't want to pay their king, so they used gold to hire swords and cast him down. Hoster says this was 500 years to 1,000 years before the Andals, if the true history is to be believed, but it's fuzzy. No one knows when the Andals actually crossed the sea. Some claim it was 4,000 years ago, some too. Hoster has a great line, though. He says, The clarity of history becomes the fog of legend. And Jamie immediately thinks that Tyrion and Hoster would get along. And he forgets his bitterness toward Tyrion for just a little while. Yeah, and, you know, all this is just George... By fire and blood, R.R. Martin saying, wow, look, I love unreliable histories. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> mushroom, mushroom. <laughs> mushroom, mushroom, badger, badger, badger. Jamie summarizes their fighting over a crown that someone took when the Casterlies had Casterly Rock, a kingdom that hadn't even existed for thousands of years. And he laughs, saying, someone would have made peace by now, and the hostage's like, yeah, they have, many have. They've sealed it with marriages, like, over and over. There's, like, Blackwood blood in every Bracken, and Bracken blood in every Blackwood. 
They say that the old king's peace lasted half a century, but the old wounds opened once more. And his father Titus says, like, that's how it always happened. And there's this line of, so long as men remember the wrongs done to their forebears, no peace will ever last. Mm, I love that line. Very deep, very meta, very thematic. It is. It, it like, is a huge part of, like, what this whole story is about, especially with, you know, the the Targaryen and Blackfire overtones going on with the whole sharing blood thing. But I kind of wonder, is it like a cautionary tale of what could have or could happen to Jamie and House Lannister? Uh, what's probably going to happen to them, to be honest? Um, and the risk of that unending enmity between them and the Starks for like all of these horrible things that have happened during this war and like leading up to the war too, right before it. And I think it's absolutely channeling what's happening at the end of this chapter with the uh, Lady Stoneheart. You know that she don't doesn't forget. It echoes in a lot of the, like, the North Remembers stuff, which is presented and feels very much like a rallying cry after everything that's happened to House Stark. But I think there should also be a caution of, like, is this actually a promise of justice and peace afterwards? Or is it just a promise of even further bloodshed? And I think that's why, for me, Bran Stark, you know, I, I think that he's same as in the show he's gonna end up forgiving theon and jamie and it is gonna be an act of mercy uh because i mean if anyone fucking remembers things it's bran stark right now he doesn't but literally his superpower is like remembering everything it's both a gift and a curse and for him to maybe yearn for peace despite all the things that he sees and remembers instead of asking for blood prices or hostages or more fighting um, I think that's big, and I think that's also a big part of why Jamie feels like, as a character, hasn't quite completed the redemption arc. Maybe he's not going to truly do so. Maybe he's not on one. Um, he's never going to completely be on the straight and narrow, because I think that the point, for me, the point of mercy is that it isn't earned. It can't be earned, right? Like I think that in meeting Bran again, that's when Jamie's going to have to come to a big transformation or it's going to be a big point in his story that is something that I think will happen again. And he's likely going to be confronted with this great sin once more. He's going to probably be confronted about it with Lady Stoneheart. Mm -hmm. But like everyone else now is maybe they'll know, maybe they won't, I don't know. Um, of like, wow, you tried to kill fucking Bran Stark. He was like a little kid. I don't know, maybe they won't know, but, like, regardless, the whole thing's gonna follow him, just like being the Kingslayer has followed him this whole time, right? He's And then he's going to have to decide again, like, whether, like, do I just give up and, like, never try to live up to anyone's expectations and do good again and just wallow and continue doing bad things because what's the fucking point? Or is he going to realize, like, that despite failing all of these things, everything, all the the tenants that I was supposed to live up to as Kingsguard, Lannister, person in general... That he should try anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really significant and bolded between him and Hoster in these discussions, right? Because they're discussing what their fathers would say. And Hoster is saying, my father claims these wounds will never be able to be healed fully. And Jamie's like, well, my dad used to say, never wound a foe when you can kill him because dead men don't claim vengeance. And Hoster's like, you can't kill all of them. And he's like, yes, you can. Ask the Tarbox, the Reigns, the Prince of Dragonstone. Uh, and he says this, but it, it feels kind of like 
Sandra clicking to Sansa Stark when she's like, oh, like, look around you, you're surrounded by killers, you know, like, you stupid girl. Jamie's not proud of his family in this chapter. I think that's really important. He's haunted by it. That's why when mm-hmm. Brienne turns up pretty soon, he says, yes, I will go with you, like, in a heartbeat. He doesn't even question it because he is searching for a chance to restore his honor. He's searching for anything that allows him to do it. And you bring up Sandra Clegane, and I think that's a big part of it, right? That idea that dead men don't claim vengeance. Mm-hmm. And that idea of rebirth figuratively, right? Like, the Hound is dead. Mm-hmm. So the Hound can't claim vengeance. So I, I wonder if that's something we'll see in Jamie's story. Like, killing the boy. Maybe he's been a boy this whole time. Letting the man be born. Whatever. Hoster says that uh, you know what? Sure, maybe dead men don't claim vengeance, but their sons sure do. And Jamie's like, yeah, and that's why Tywin Lannister does things like, I mean, you can ask the Tarvex, the Reigns of Castamere about it, or the Prince of Dragonstone, the Jamie. The implication, of course, is like, oh, wait, you fucking can't. And I think it's kind of ironic that it seems unlikely that House Lannister will survive past Tommen's generation. I've just kind of always gotten like a follow the House of Usher vibes from Jamie and Cersei, but House Lannister probably not continuing. God, you know, now that you say that, like to bring up another House Usher, I kind of always felt Let It Burn vibes from Jamie and Cersei. <laughs> yes. Different House Ugh. Usher, but. <laughs> Jamie to the realm. These are my confessions. Oh my god. She's got another one on the way. It's mine. My bastard child of incest. So red clouds roll across the western hills ahead of them, and they remind him of Rhaegar's children in their crimson cloaks in that moment. Of course, coincidentally, Hoster boldly asks if that's why the Lannisters killed all the Starks, right? If if that's why, because it was easier to silence them. But Jaime says, no, we didn't. The daughters still live. One has just been wed. The other... Brienne, where are you? Have you found her? If the gods are good, she'll forget she was a Stark. She'll wed some burly blacksmith or fat-faced innkeep, fill his house with children, and never need to fear some knight might come along to smash their heads against a wall. The gods are good? His hostage said uncertainly. You go on believing that. Jamie let Honor feel his spurs. This was a cynical passage. It was, and I mean, as people have pointed out, not us, um, throughout the fandom, every time someone's like, if the gods are good, and everyone's like, well, the gods aren't good in this story. Everything goes awry. The opposite of what people think <laughs> would happen when the gods are good. I don't have much commentary on it, but speaking of fandom analysis, something that's kind of common grounds to analyze is this part about how if Sansa Stark is still alive, if she's lucky, she'll marry a, a fat-faced innkeep, or she'll marry a burly blacksmith and fill his house with kids and, you know, live a good life. What's up with that? Your gods are not good. I mean, what about Arya marrying a blacksmith? That's probably not happening either, but... Or Pot Pie. Wow. A baker. Wait, I, whoa, I've never considered that love triangle before. Oh my god. That's an idea. Better That's than season eight. Actually, though, it's an idea. 
So they arrive at Penny Tree, which is larger than Jamie expected, and it's experienced the war as well as most of the lands they've come across in the Riverlands, but for every home they find destroyed, they find about three that have been rebuilt already. He sees fresh doors and new thatches, and he comes to the tree that gives Penny Tree its name. It's an ancient, tall, gnarled oak tree with hundreds of copper pennies nailed to it. Wow, the tourist attraction. Jamie's really, really going places on his road trip. I kind of love it. I know, I, I just think it's so funny. He's like, wow, let's go see the big rubber band ball. And then Peck asks, like, wait, where are all the people? And Jamie tells him, they're hiding. The fires are all extinguished, but smoke is still in the chimneys, and not a soul was to be seen, because they were hiding from them, from the Kingslayer. He rides on her, calling into the villages, hold fast, that they meant them no harm, they're kingsmen, and the villagers like, that means fucking nothing to us. Uh, the faces appear at the wall above the gate, calling down to him, they're like, you know, it was kingsmen who burnt the village, Again, like, it was some other kingsmen who took their sheep, and then killed Harsley, Sir Ormond, and then raped Lacey till she died. Ugh. It's awful. Sad. This is the real, like, thing. Right here, like he was just distracted between the Bracken and Blackwood debate for a good whole day, and now here he is at a village where these people have had their lives destroyed by his family's men. Yeah, and and now he has to confront all that, right? Like as you said earlier, he's wrestling and really coming face to face now with like shit. This is the Lannister legacy, and literally he's about to confront it when Brienne comes to take him to Stoneheart. I mean. That's what Stoneheart is claiming to represent, right? I'm not saying that Stoneheart's remainder faction here of what's left of the Brotherhood is great. We know that some of the Brotherhood left behind aren't exactly fun or great, uh, and that this is kind of a corrupted crew that's left, right? The good ones have kind of died or left, for the most part, but uh, uh, they're supposed to stand for the little person, right? They're what's left to champion those little people. And when they are what's left and they're already a little, little cray cray, right? Like on the little, just on the side there, you're like, Oh wow. I don't want to mess with this crew. That's what he's about to go confront. Yikes. Yeah. Big yikes. Well, Jamie calls back that his men will not do what those King's men did. And he asks if they'll open the gates for them, but they declare they won't until the King's men leave. Kenos is like, Jamie, we should just torch it or open it up ourselves. But Jamie's like, no, we probably shouldn't just kill them. They haven't really done anything wrong. You know, uh, they can shelter in the houses. He commands they don't steal anything because they have their own provisions. So they stake out. Jamie shares his wine with Peck and Hoster, eating dried apples and hard cheese. And he tries to count the pennies in the oak tree, wondering what they mean. He thinks about asking Hoster, but he kind of likes the mystery. I'm realizing now maybe this is another thing that is supposed to create more of another connection between Jamie and Tyrion's storylines. The whole, like, in like a sort of cute Easter egg kind of way. He's, like, looking and pondering on these pennies. And then Tyrion is running around Essos with a girl named Penny. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so, okay. I see it. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, like, he thinks about her as, like, a penny all the time. So In for that's, a penny, out for a... And the groat. Up for a dragon? 
Jamie had left sentries at the village and sent scouts as well, and at midnight two men gallop in with a female prisoner. The woman had rode in boldly, demanding words with him. This is it, our last Jamie passage. Shit! Until the wind's a winner, at least. We'll see. We'll oh see. Uh, am I Jamie? Are you Brienne? What are, who's who? This is defining. I don't know. I mean, I feel like you've been Jamie throughout this chapter, so okay. who are we to change now? I guess you're right. Jamie scrambled to his feet. My lady, I had not thought to see you again so soon. Gods be good, she looked ten years older than when I saw her last, and what's happened to her face? That bandage, you, you've been wounded. A bite. She touched the hilt of her sword. The sword that he had given her. Oathkeeper. My lord, you gave me a quest. The girl? Have have you found her? I have. Said Brienne, maid of Tarth. Where is she? A day's ride. I can take you to her, sir. But you will need to come alone. Elsewise the hound will kill her. First of all, Sandra Clegane would never do that. It is something that I wonder in terms of Jamie's reaction to this, and maybe we'll see it in his thoughts of him being like, what? Because he was a very big on like the, yeah. the Sandra Clegane apologist-like thing to the rest of the people in the Riverlands. He was all like, Sandra wouldn't do that. That doesn't sound like the Hound. It's almost like he's giving in to this prejudice now because he's heard from people that the Hound is traveling with these outlaws of sorts, which... The Hound is traveling with these outlaws, but not the Hound, as we know. Um, so maybe he's just giving in to the details that he has. I think there's that, or he's just like... There's that, or he's so desperate to find Sansa Stark Yeah. when it comes to his honor. And also, he's like, wow, Brienne's asking me on a date. Amazing. I want to go to the Sadie Hawkins dance. Brienne Tarth. that's Jamie Lannister right now. <laughs> so, again... Cannot untie Brienne and Jamie's storylines, and here we're seeing some of those parallels now of Brienne is the one who's being forced to break oaths in quite an un- dishonorable way, right? Uh, the person that she'd sworn an oath to is demanding something unconscionable of her, same as what happened to Jamie, and now Brienne is in the position of where she's betraying people. She's sworn so many vows, they make you swear and swear, and now she has to lie. And then she's gone on this quest, and it comes back to Jamie, and she looks ten years aged. And I think there's uh, something kind of being evoked there, right, of a sort of magical quest. Like she went off into wherever, and there she was gone for ten years, even though we, she was, we knew she was gone for a book. But it feels like this very magical thing, especially because we're about to have Jamie step out of the world of just this political game of that's been going on in A Song of Ice and Fire, and now he's starting to enter the mm-hmm. magical plot. Mm-hmm. So, so you have that converging here. And in this quest, right, Brienne says she's found the girl, but I, 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 and I think she has, right? She hasn't found Sansa, but she's found the girl, Brienne, that she was, her innocence, and that innocence is dying. The Hound has killed it. It wasn't Sandra Clegane, but it, that was a turning point for Brienne's storyline. 
Uh, and it's the equivalent of kill the boy and let the man be born. Mm-hmm. That's happening for Brienne. And we have to acknowledge it because it's going to affect Jamie, just as Jamie has affected her. I, I think it's a two-way street. And losing her innocence, though, I will say, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Right? I think that you can hold on to hope despite losing your innocence, and I think that's the harder thing to do, and I think that's very much at the core a lot of what Jamie's storyline is. How do you hold on to hope and trying to do the right thing despite having lost innocence? That's something that Ned Stark struggled with as well. And, you know, I don't know that we're going to read Brienne as necessarily needing redemption for all of these things that are happening, right? Brienne herself might feel the need for it, but I don't think it's something that's going to be like the reader demands it or, or feels that need for, for her to make up or atone for something morally. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much to wonder for what Jamie's role in that part of Brienne's storyline is going to be. Like, he has to explain how he broke another oath uh, to Lady Stoneheart, especially. One that he thought that he was keeping. One that Brienne is pretty sure that they are all keeping. But now it, things are all weird. And and I think that's part of why he yearns for innocence so much in a woman. Uh, the, it ties back to that oath keeping. Because I think he yearns for innocence in fucking like, anyone around him, right? Like... The Riverlands are horrible right now. All the a lot of the people that we've encountered in Jamie's storyline are horrible, from like Roose Bolton to the Bloody Mummers. Uh, so few people in his own family have any innocence. It's completely soaked in blood. Lancel even doesn't. Like he's trying to cleanse himself in a tone because he feels that his innocence is gone, which is I think really sad. Davin Lannister just wants to party and kill. Uh, Tyrion killed his dad. Cersei's doing Cersei things. And Jamie just himself, right? He stopped even trying for innocence so long ago. And because he was like, what was the fucking point? He was always denied innocence from the start, from the moment that he killed Ares. Though he, and after that explanation, right, the reader feels that he's innocent of that. He's not innocent of what happened with Bran Stark, but he wants innocence not necessarily in everyone else, not necessarily in a woman but he wants innocence for himself. Yeah, I think you're out of selling with the idea that Brienne will want redemption for herself. I think she'll feel terrible, especially if any bits of my theory kind of come true with them spending extra time in the Riverlands together and her maybe avoiding some of her own duty to Lady Stoneheart because I really, I don't think that they're going to go back to Lady Stoneheart. I think something's going to interrupt them. I, uh... Because how are they going to get out of this wacky situation? You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of how it feels. And I don't know. I I kind of hinted at it last episode. We chatted a little on it. But maybe this is tinfoil or controversial. I think it's more likely that there's a Grand Riverlands conspiracy theory. And I wonder if there's something about it being hinted at in these Jamie chapters. Especially this one. Because... We get this line from Titus. He doesn't say anything when Jamie asks if he'd tell him if he had the blackfish. Uh, he just smiles. Tom of Seven Streams now has direct access to the Lannister army secrets. Dondarrion's dead. The rest of the crew is literally where Jamie's kind of heading. Red Wedding 2.0 is incredibly likely. Jane Westerling escape or death is likely. And then something was weird about the way that Hoster agreed they should go to Penny Tree and came across all these men that are, of course, in the holdfast locking themselves in. Like, 
Could the Blackwoods have led Jamie into a trap or something that Brienne could come find them at? You know what I mean? Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, kind of like they led them to Penny Tree, which, of course, as we'll talk in a second for Dunkin' Egg, is a very big place, especially in regards to Jamie and Brienne. But, I mean, the last spark of the rebellion ends at the Blackwoods, and Titus just says, you know, you're right. I give in, Jamie Lannister. I don't know. Yeah, and even Jonas Bracken is like, that seems like enough, I guess. Whoa, that would be wild. Sorry. <laughs> the, the Brackens and the Blackwoods teaming up just for this. Just for this, um, I wish. I wish. As part of the conspiracy? That'd be interesting. Well, we have a lot of Penny Tree stuff here, right? To talk Duncan Egg novellas. Sir Arlen of Penny Tree, if you all recall, was born in Penny Tree, saw the last dragon in King's Landing as a little boy, unhorsed Lord Stokeworth in 193, and the Bastard of Harrenhal in Melee at King's Landing, and also Sir Damon Lannister at Lannisport. He was defeated by the Prince of Dragonstone, Baylor Targaryen, at Storm's End, attorney, and he chose never to joust again. Reminds me a little bit of Bonifer Hasty there, and his story with Rayella. Roger... Uh, Arlen's nephew, that's his squire, they fight in the Battle of the Redgrass Field and Roger dies. Arlen sees Lord Hayford slain by Gorman Peak near him, and Arlen meets Dunk. He becomes his squire, Dunk learns from Arlen, and they do hired tasks for a time, like hanging outlaws, for example. He and Dunk serve Lord Dondarrion against the Vulture King, and Arlen dies of a chill on the way to Ashford Meadow, and is buried on a western slope of a hill by Dunk. Dunk claims Arlen knighted him, but most people, I think you're one of these people, don't believe Arlen knighted him. I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, in a small sense, Brienne is obviously the Dunk comparison here, but I feel like we might get some Duncan Egg or Duncan Arlen-esque adventures with the very jaded disillusioned Jamie Lannister and the naive, innocent Brienne, who might not be so naive and innocent now, coming up in The Winds of Winter. Yeah, definitely. Or I wonder if there's something that we could have gotten that like was going to be in the She-Wolves of Winterfell that were supposed to be... That, that George had the hope to be released before the sixth book, and he's like, but what if I just focus on writing the sixth book? <laughs> Which... Oh, yes. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, but I wonder if there's something that would have been there too. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you said, foreshadowing for him letting Brienne, you know, finally, finally, like all of that coming together, right? Like it does feel like it. It nice feels bow. like there's something in George making that little like, oh, no one knows if Dunk was actually knighted by Arlen or not, or if it counts. Yeah. And I think that's something that's going to be big when it comes to Brienne, right? Like, no one knows if it actually counts or not for Sir Brienne. Um, but I think it does. She's the truest knight Westeros has. Absolutely. Just as Dunk was a very true knight, right? And acting like it and that's a lot of what the Dunk and Egg novellas explore. Yeah, uh, a knight who remembered his vows, his honor. Yeah. And that's what I think Jamie Lannister has been working much more toward, right? Uh, we start Remembering. these books off with him, just some jock dude who doesn't give a shit about his squirts of seed. 
that have somehow taken the throne. And now we end it with Jamie hardcore searching for his honor. And I think that is a definite change in his arc. Yeah. Ooh, what if he loses his horse? Not honor. You no, know, getting getting the car stolen. That's a big part of uh, a lot of these road trip these road trip stories too, something like that, you know? <laughs> yes. These, these these sorts of buddy movies. <sighs> Jamie Lannister. I still don't like him. Because she loves him. I don't love anyone. <laughs> she doesn't like anything. <laughs> Chloe is the becoming the true Sundarian. That's how you know she relates to Jamie Lannister. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to us cover Jamie Lannister throughout A Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows, and A Dance with Dragons. It has truly been a horse, an honor to be with you for this. And we look forward to starting our new POV in the coming weeks here. Aries Oakheart. Yes. Uh, stay tuned for that and I think it's going to be fun. A lot of we're going to do some some things to that tie back, of course, to the things that we've discussed in Jamie's storyline. A lot of those themes. I mean, we are of course coming back to another White Knight, another member of the King's Guard. So think of Ares as a palate cleanser, but at the same time, yeah. And you'll have a new POV announced as soon as we launch Ares Oakheart as well. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I know you're going to get a little whiplash, but yes, a quick POV to come right after that. And I think another POV right after that. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm going to miss discussing Jamie. I was really looking forward to discussing JB, and I can't believe it's over. It was way faster than I thought it would be, unlike the John chapters, which were way longer than I thought they were going to be. John chapters took so long. And, like, I know that's a silly complaint because we haven't gotten anywhere near Tyrion, Danny, Arya chapters. But, damn. Yeah. So. Well, we will see you all when we get to Dorne with Aerys Oakheart. But in the meantime, you know where to find us. Check us out over on social media at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N on Twitter.com. Or if you want to send an email like some of our friends at the top of the episode did, you can do so at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes. And of course, subscribe to us for more conversations and for more characters. You can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Acast, Podbean, Apple Podcasts. Allegedly overcast, and allegedly we're missing some some episodes on a couple of these platforms, so we gotta figure that out. We're working on it, guys. That at we're some working time. on it. I promise. I promise. Hey, and don't forget to check us out over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. This month on our Patreon for the Stranger Tier and above, we will be putting out extra episodes, extra content on some cool Song of Ice and Fire stuff. More to come on that very soon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. I have been another one of your hosts, Honor. No, you're Aliana. I'm Honor. Uh, uh, I'm Valor. No, you're Glory. Oh, is it Glory? Is that the fucking name? Yeah. God damn it. I fucked up. It's a horse, Aliana. It's like I didn't even read these chapters. It's like I don't know anything. (sighs) Goodbye, everyone. We will talk to you soon. Goodbye.